So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask now that you would fill the whole limits of our horizons with fresh views, new vistas of the glory of the work and the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one on the throne, the man of Calvary, and the Lord of glory. Show us, remind us that he's coming soon, and our task here is to get ready for that day. Begin to change us inside out, Save us, O Lord, from the broken strategies of the world that are interested only in external behavior and don't touch the heart. Instead, renew our motives, inflame our desires, and incline our will so that more than anything else, we want the smile of our Savior, the well-done, good and faithful servant of our Master. Would you do that in each of us? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? John Owen posed that question in his classic book on spiritual mindedness. What do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? It's a disarmingly simple question, isn't it? But it serves as a measurement of our spiritual mindedness. When our minds are in neutral, do we find ourselves drifting into thoughts about Jesus. Perhaps that sounds so pietistic that you recoil from even answering. But Paul, in this passage, would have us ask such a question. He's concerned about the development of a spiritual mind. The way we think will determine the way we act. Some Christians seem to have no understanding. They fail to use their minds in the process of spiritual formation. They're at the mercy of feeling or impulse. And yet Paul here is calling for a total reevaluation. Can I say that there are some parts of God's word that serve as a key that unlock for us what the Christian life is essentially like and which serve to open up the rest of the scriptures? I think so. And for me, this text is one of them. Passages like this help me understand what the whole Bible is about. If we're going to have a Christian life that is mature and glorifying to God, it is vitally important for us to have what we might call a correct mindset. This has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with whether we have a college degree. It is not our IQ, but the disposition of our mind to focus on certain things that is in view here. The Colossians were being influenced by false teachers who suggested that they needed a secret knowledge. Knowledge that they didn't possess as of yet in order to reach the next stage in their spirituality. And only a few possessed this knowledge. But Paul is clear. Every Christian has been given fullness in Christ. And he wants every Christian to realize what they already are in Christ. To set our minds on Christ and our new life with him. So the big idea that I want us to believe, that we need to believe this morning, is this. Christ is is your life. So keep looking up 
to Christ until you are with Christ. But how would Paul help us keep looking to Christ? What does it mean that Christ is our life? That's what I want us to consider this morning. And Paul sets forth five helps to heavenly mindedness. First, he sets forth a reminder. We have been raised with Christ. Second, he sets forth our responsibility. We must seek and set our minds on things above. Third, he sets forth our resource. Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning at God's right hand in heaven above. Fourth, he sets forth the reason. We died with Christ in the past, and our life is now hidden with Christ. And fifth, he sets forth the future revelation. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. So may the Lord use these helps to set our hearts and our hope on Christ and our home with him in heaven. But first, let's consider the reminder. Look at verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, stop right there. Now that if is the if of reality. Some translations say therefore or since because it's an accomplished fact. Since you have been risen with Christ, right? It's an accomplished reality. So the resurrection and your past. Why is this so important for you to know? Why does Paul lead his exposition of the Christian life with this? Pressing on the believer how important it is to know who we are in Christ. He wants us to grasp the glorious position that we have in Christ. That by God's grace we are identified with Christ and made alive with him. Paul is not saying, be raised to newness of life. He's not asking us to become something that as yet we are not. Rather, he wants us to realize what we already are. And in doing so, he's repeating something that he not only has already spoken of in this letter, but also that which he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. God made us alive with Christ. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Every Christian shares a seat with Jesus in the heavenly realms, and that should move us to worship. You see, Paul wants us to see our day-to-day life as living out the implications of the gospel. He doesn't want you to come away saying, well, God has forgiven me of my sins, and he's clothed me in the righteousness of his son, and now my Christian living is what I do in my unaided response. God did so much for me, and now I'm going to have to do this much for him. No, Paul's saying your day-to-day Christian living is part of the gracious work of God in you and for you. Yes, you play a necessary role to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but how did God find you? He found you when you were dead, and he made you alive, so that if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Brothers and sisters, do you live with that sense of wonder? Did you wake up this morning and look in the mirror and say, I am a resurrected person? I don't always feel this way. But Paul is saying, it doesn't matter, Christian, if you feel this way. This is who you are. You have a new life. Now, I think we often get the downsides to the Christian life. We, we understand the persistence of sin. We understand the shortcomings of our Christian life, our failings. We resonate with that lovely phrase in the Book of Common Prayer. We are miserable offenders, and that's true. 
But do you also understand that in Christ, you are spiritually raised from the dead? And even now, so that you are dead to the bondage of sin and you are alive to God in Christ. This Christian is true of you because Jesus has died and is raised and you have been united to him by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit has united you to Jesus Christ through faith in him. And not only do you have a new position, there is a divine power at work in you to strengthen you and motivate you to live your Christian life. This is not wishful thinking. This isn't Paul saying, you know, just think it and it may be so. When you're tempted, Christian, and and temptation comes on in different ways, sometimes it's those fiery darts that the devil lobs at you and they come out of nowhere. Sometimes temptation comes in and crushes us and crushes us and won't let go. When When you're tempted, what do you do? Well, you start here. You say, I'm not the person I once was by the grace of God. I am in Christ. I am no longer bound by the dominion of sin. Through Christ, I can put up a fight. The very power that made Christ alive from the dead, that power is at work in me. That's where you start, Christian. By grace, the born-again believer is not only forgiven of sin, but is dead to sin because sin's power in the life of every Christian was forever broken at the cross. And though sin's influence remains throughout this earthly life, it is increasingly subdued as we keep the old self nailed to the cross and daily learn to live unto Christ. At salvation, we were not only forgiven of our sin and declared righteous by God, we were removed from the old creation in Adam and placed into the new creation in Christ. How important to reckon ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ, to remember our heavenly position in Christ as an accomplished fact. You see, the whole issue here is to live a Christ-conscious life. And the basis of it all is this reminder. You have been raised with Christ. The old life is gone. You're living the new life, the new eternal life. And as long as you're there positionally, remember where your position is and start operating to get toward that in reality. Don't forget who you are in Christ. But second, Paul reminds us, and then he sets forth our responsibility. Look at verses 1 through 2 again. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. First of all, notice that Paul tells us that Christians must seek the things above. We're to set our affections on spiritual things. That is where our heart is to be. As one old Puritan said, treasures are laid up in heaven only as treasures on earth are laid down. We set our hearts on things above. Set your desires, your yearnings on the spiritual blessings which are found only in Christ. This is absolutely necessary for Christian growth. And it's absolutely necessary for combating sin. Your heart must be set on God. He must be the one that you're hungering after. If you're not the hunger after the deceitful pleasures of sin. So our affections must be set on things above. That doesn't mean we're unconcerned with temporal things. It doesn't mean we're bad spouses or bad parents or bad employees. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about how to be a good Christian spouse and parent and child and employee later in the chapter. He's saying, where's your allegiance? Where are your priorities? It's very close to what Jesus says, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. 
It's a good test of where we are spiritually that we ask ourselves the fundamental questions. What is my chief aim in life? For what do I really live? What controls the way I engineer the priorities of my life? The answers to these questions tell me where my heart really is. If I have been raised into this new life, then my affections and desires are to be focused on Jesus Christ, who is above. It echoes the teaching of Jesus. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Paul confronts us with two choices. Are we living for this world, or are we living for the world to come? And notice, we're not passive. The will is engaged. We're seeking and pursuing. There's work to be done. God doesn't simply zap holiness into the Christian. You must engage your will and resolve towards obedience. Seek the things that are above. And if we're united to Christ, Paul says, who is seated on the throne of glory, king of kings, lord of lords, the life over which he reigns, the life of a citizen in his kingdom, is the life we are to pursue. It's the life he describes in the remainder of this chapter. We're to seek it, to love what he loves. Paul says, first principle, seek the things above. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is Christ your treasure? Are things above your delight? This is a good test to see whether we are in Christ or not. But notice what Paul says in verse 2. Not only should our affections be set on God, our desires be set on God, but our minds ought to be set on God. Our thoughts should be focused on heavenly matters. We should be pondering them. We should be meditating on them. We should be reflecting upon them. We should be thinking about these heavenly matters. Lightfoot said years ago, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. Seeking heaven, our affections are put there. Thinking heaven, our thoughts are focused on things above. And again, this doesn't mean that we ignore temporal things. It means our priorities are set. And as we fulfill our duties in this life, we don't forget that we are citizens of heaven. Though we are pilgrims here, though we are to live as obedient citizens here, yet there is another home which awaits us. And there is a reality about us which is going to be revealed. And all the praise and all the glory will not go to us, but to the Lord Jesus himself. So you have to focus on the fact that heaven is your true home. That's where your citizenship is. Your Father is there. Your Savior is there. The Spirit is there. The redeemed and glorified saints are there. The church triumphant is there. Your inheritance is there. Your reward is there. A home being prepared for you is there. Paul says, fix your mind on Christ, on the one on the throne, on a life that will bring a smile to your Savior's face. Make His glory your heart's desire. And then you begin to see that holiness is about honoring Him, serving Him, because you trust Him in the wake of all that He has done, how He has given Himself for you. How could you not gladly give your life, give your all for Him? And holiness like that touches the heart. It changes the deep structures of our motivation. We're not the focal point of it all. He is. So train your appetite to delight in Jesus. Let him be the fuel that empowers your obedience. Such a determined insistence on spiritual mindedness, spiritual desires, and spiritual thoughts is derided today as it has always been. 
too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use is the saying bandied about as though it were a truism. But it isn't true. In fact, such a mindset has been the one most influential in changing this world for the better. Those whose hearts were most sensitive to earthly concerns and abuses were invariably of a heavenly frame of mind. It was certainly true of the abolitionist William Wilberforce, the founder of Children's Homes, George Mueller, just to name a few. So how does this flesh out in our lives practically? Paul is teaching that we need to take each step in this life and each decision we make and measure it by the word of God and by eternity. We must know our eternal destination so that when we make decisions on earth, we have a good idea of which direction we ought to go. When we know that this isn't our eternal destination on earth, we can see more clearly and discern which decisions to make more accurately. Let me give you a few practical examples. When we go to buy a vehicle, we need to think about how that is going to affect our giving to gospel work. When we go to buy a house, we need to think about how that is going to affect our giving to missions. How we spend our money is paramount in judging how eternal we think. It is a great barometer of truth when it comes to our hearts and minds. Just as a barometer measures atmospheric pressure, our bank statements measures our worldly pressure. It doesn't stop at your checkbook, though. When we consider moving to a new neighborhood, we need to think about where God wants us to be in order to reach our neighbors with the gospel. We aren't just to decide without regard for the Lord. And the applications are endless. How many extracurricular activities we allow our children to be in? Which activities we allow them to be in? Whether we allow them to miss church for one of these activities. And then there are job choices and marriage choices and time management choices. Again, we don't just keep our heads in the clouds and ignore earthly decisions. We have to make earthly decisions constantly because we are still on earth. And yet it's clear we must know what destination we are heading toward so that we can make decisions for God-honoring ends with eternity in mind. We need to live with purpose. And that purpose is not simply doing what we want to do. That purpose needs to be all about glorifying God and making much of Christ. We live in a humanistic and individualistic culture. We're bombarded with ads daily that tempt us to be selfish and think of our wants and our desires at the expense of considering others. And yes, our God does give us good gifts. And yes, our God does allow for times of rest and vacations and recreation. Yet I pray that we as a church are ultimately a heavenly-minded people. And if you're struggling with worldliness, if there's so much garbage going into your mind and your heart that you're not thinking and seeking Christ, if your affections for Him have dueled, these two verses show you the way back. Look to Christ. Look to Him. And don't stop looking until you are changed. In the words of that wonderful hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what I want us to do now. I want us to meditate on that massive phrase tucked at the end of verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's there. And he is seated, seen in a sitting position. And he is waiting in majesty and honor for us to enter his presence and claim his power. This is the resource, people. The reminder, the responsibility, and now the resource 
the truth of Christ's coronation, the truth of his exaltation at the Father's right hand means that he's the fountain of blessing for his people. Because he's there, because he's exalted, because he's at the Father's right hand, the Father has said to him, you are honored, you are praised, you are glorified, I give you everything I have. And then we go into his presence and receive it by faith. So I want us to consider briefly this exalted heavenly glory of Jesus Christ. That is the glory of his exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the glory which follows his humiliation and suffering, as Peter refers to when he writes of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is a fundamental article of our faith, as Paul declares in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, that he was taken up in glory. The ascension led to the right hand of God, where Jesus Christ assumed as the Messiah the prerogatives of his office on a universal scale. Christ was granted supreme lordship and universal dominion over men. And this is that glory which he presently enjoys in heaven. We may say, in a sense, that this glory also, like his humiliation, is eclipsed. But its veiling is only here on earth. In heaven, the ancient doors have been lifted up and the king of glory has come in. Heaven's favorite son has returned. The temporary eclipse of his humiliation is now past and over. He now blazes forth in infinite luster and beauty on high. And the day shall come when that glory in heaven shall be seen by men on earth, as we will consider shortly. This is the glory about which the Lord prayed in John 17, verse 24, when he said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. This is the glory, which is the glory, the beauty of heaven. So let us consider briefly for the encouragement of our faith and the advancement of our obedience and love, that glory which is Christ's in his present state of exaltation before the consummation of all things. And our focus here is on what some have called his present session on high. And I'm sure that I'm like those who gave the Queen of Sheba reports of the splendor of Solomon's wealth and wisdom. The half cannot be told. Consider first the fact of his exaltation and glory. This glory was predicted by the prophets, powerfully preached by the apostles, and personally perceived by some. It was predicted by the prophets in Isaiah 52, verse 13. God says, see, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. David says in Psalm 110, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord Jesus himself predicted his session and glorious return in Mark 14. The high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It was preached by the apostles. This is one of the great headings of Peter's Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2. Not only Jesus' resurrection, but his exaltation. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The writer to the Hebrews declares at the very beginning of his letter, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this was perceived by some. This glory was seen by Stephen in Acts 7 
unto his comforting. It was seen by Paul in Acts 9 unto his commissioning. And it was seen by John in Revelation 1 unto his encouraging. Even in the picture John is given later of the exalted Christ in Revelation 5, there remains a reminder of the basis of it as Christ appears as the Lamb standing as if slain. This is the fact of his exaltation and glory. But consider also the nature of his exaltation and glory. The God-man in glory at God's right hand. One has written of this exaltation that Jesus returned to where he was no stranger. But his return to glory was not in the same way as he left it. He returned as something more than he was before. In terms of his deity, he is now entered into the full, clear, and manifest revealing of his deity. The glory of his Godhead, eclipsed in his humiliation, is revealed in his exaltation. Nothing was added to his deity when he was exalted, but Christ's exaltation, like his humiliation, could not make any real change in his divine nature, only in terms of its manifestation. And then in terms of his humanity, one has said, the dust of earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. But his human nature, that manhood which he assumed in this world, is now glorified and exalted into glory. And as he was exalted, he did not leave his humanity behind. That very body in which he was raised from the dead is now glorified in heaven. What Paul calls in Philippians 3, his glorious body. And who can describe this glorious body or comprehend it aright? As it has not yet appeared what we shall be like, so it has not fully appeared what he is to whom we shall be conformed. That body of his humiliation which received the blows and spit and nails of men, which hungered and thirsted and wearied and wept and suffered and died, is now crowned with glory and honor. John caught a glimpse of it and fell as a dead man. Having been raised to glory, he remains the man of glory, Christ Jesus. He is exalted with our nature. Having taken our humanity in his incarnation and humiliation, he forever retains it in his glorification. His marriage to our flesh and his humiliation is indissoluble. The bonds of this mysterious matrimony forged by grace out of love will never be broken. All that man as man is, that Christ is, to eternity, Warfield said. And beloved, this is an astonishing thing. He does not disdain our nature. Indeed, he has honored it. It is now part and parcel of his own eternal glory. That he is not ashamed to call us brothers is seen by his perpetual identification with us in glory in terms of his bodily and human existence in glory. And as such, he remains forever sensitive and sympathetic to us. This exaltation forms the pattern of our own at his return. So this glory you see is a different glory from what he had in eternity past. It is a new glory a sort of added glory of glorified humanity joined to magnified deity. This is now his permanent glory, his unchanging glory, his eternal glory, his from now on and forever glory. And so friends, do you think of Christ in his present exalted state as glorious? This is the resource we have in heaven. And I promise you something, Christian, everything you seek is there because he is there 
in our new life, then what do we have? A reminder. You've already been raised with Christ and placed in the heavens positionally. A responsibility. Get your practical life above and seek the things that are there, are there by setting your mind on those things. And a resource. Have the confidence to know that what you seek is there because he is there. Do you seek encouragement? Beloved, take heart. His interest shall not fail. If he conquered in weakness and death, will he not prevail, risen and reigning? He came to purchase all our blessings by his life and death and resurrection, and now he is glorious above to provide them. Take heart. His glorification is even the pattern and pledge of our own. Do you need help obeying Paul's exhortation? Christ's exaltation helps us to be high-minded. This is where we are to be minded, beloved. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If Christ is precious to you, if he is your priceless treasure, then you will be marked by a sort of heavenly distractedness. His exhortation helps us to be sober-minded. Think highly of Christ. None who know him well, think lightly, speak lightly, or worship lightly the Lord of lords and King of kings. It helps us to be right-minded. Do not think to follow him to glory if you do not follow him in his sufferings. Do not think to find glory here, but like him hereafter. And do not seek glory here, but seek his glory. These verses provoke us to examination. Is this glory your present joy and contemplation? John Owen wrote, The present satisfaction we receive in them by faith is the best evidence we have of an indefeasible interest in them. And Christ's exaltation is a wonderful resource for our evangelism. He has raised up a sovereign to be honored. He has raised up to be believed in. He has raised up a Savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. It was this gloriously exalted Christ, the only Lord over all, whom the apostles preached. For them, because of who Christ is, the work he did, the place he occupies, and the titles he bears, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. For them, he is the only mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. For them and for us, he is the only one who is once for all offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice is alone acceptable to God the Father and whose high priestly intercession alone meets with the Father's approval. And so we can sing, Sometimes the sky looks dark with not a ray of light. We're tossed and driven on, no human help in sight. But there is one in heaven who knows your deepest care. Let Jesus solve your problem. Just go to him in prayer. But fourthly, consider the reason. Verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is exhorting Christians to do certain things because we are motivated by certain things that are true about us. We have died with Christ, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. This is one of the basic things every Christian needs to appreciate about what it means to be a Christian. That we have a past death and a present life in Christ. Paul unveils that as a believer in Christ, your death, the worst thing that could ever happen to you, is already behind you. It has already happened. Again, he's not saying die to yourself. 
No, as those who are in Christ, we have been united with him in his death and resurrection. We are in him. Christ lives in us and through us. Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We have died with him, and now our lives are his. Therefore, everything we do and say should be impacted by our identity in him. But Paul presses the question of motivation still further in the second half of verse 3. First he deals with the past, then he deals with the present. Here's what we already enjoy. Verse 3, what is it that we enjoy? He says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Well, there's a mystery here. We are in some way already with Christ in God. He is our refuge, our new environment, our true home. Our life is bound up with Jesus in God. We have this extraordinary communion and fellowship with the Father in Christ by the Holy Spirit right now. And yet, it is hidden. Your life is not what the world thinks it is. It is hidden from the world. Indeed, in some ways, hidden from you with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's as secure as the union of the Father and the Son. Right? Infinitely, gloriously secure, but not yet revealed in full to the world. Hidden. Do you know something, Christian? Your life is concealed from the world. They don't know it. <laughs> they think you're just like everybody else. They don't know what I know and what you know by faith. You see, the world doesn't know about us. The natural man does not understand the things of God. Do you think they know that you are raised with Christ? Do you think they understand what you seek? Do, you, do they know that you're a citizen of heaven? They haven't got any idea. All the false teachers besieging the Colossians come along saying, you need this and you need that or you'll never make it. What they didn't know was the Colossians already made it. But it was concealed from their deluded minds. And so when Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God, that means I'm all tied up with them. I'm secure. And it also means, and I think this is the main point based on verse 4, my new life is concealed from the world. And I need to realize that they're not going to understand me. That this isn't my home. This isn't my country. This isn't the place I dwell. I'm a stranger and an exile and a pilgrim. And my true identity won't be fully revealed until the last day. And that's where Paul ends his thought. Fifth and finally, there's the revelation. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears or is revealed, then you also will appear and be revealed with him in glory. And as we come to the end, I want us to consider now Christ's glory in his second advent, his promised return. As we earlier considered his exalted glory, Paul now turns our eyes to his end-time glory. And some might refer to this aspect of Christ's glory as his apocalyptic glory or his coming glory. Take what name you will. My interest is that you would behold him, believe on him, and love and long for him to come and consummate his union with his blood-bought bride. So Paul begins with that wonderful word of certainty. When? This is not a matter of if, or possibly, or even probably. 
but a matter of certainty. And as to the certainty of his coming glory, there should be no confusion. For the scriptures, from the beginning to end, declare it. It is the subject of the prophets, of Christ himself, and of the apostles. Take as one example the prophet Daniel. Daniel 7, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Or consider Christ's own declarations. After the revelation of his coming death in Matthew 16, the Lord mentioned his coming glory. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. He described the nature of his coming in Luke 17, For as the lightning flashes from one horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. The last evening with his disciples, he promised his coming. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, and so that where I am, you may be also. He spoke of his coming to his enemies on the night before his death. They questioned him, and are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This coming was the certain hope of the dying and penitent thief as he pled with Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This coming is predicted and described by the angels in Acts 1 verse 11. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And this coming was part of the apostolic preaching and letters. In almost every letter of the New Testament, there is some reference to this great event. Acts 3, verse 19 to 20, this is what they preach. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. The writer to the Hebrews, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. But what will be the character of this revelation? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, here is a glory we are to long for and pray for. This is what grace instructs us and produces in us. Titus 2, awaiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory, that is the way this blessed event is constantly referred to. What a difference he will have in his second coming from his first. His first appearance was manifested in much weakness. His second appearing will be manifested in much power. His first appearance was without visible glory. His second appearance will be bathed in glory. He will come in invisible and majestic glory. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He will return bodily. It will be a radiant glory that no one can miss. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be displayed before the whole world, None will be able to ignore him in his coming glory. All will see him who thought so little of him. Him who they laughed at, mocked, 
blasphemed, ignored. They will see him gloriously coming. Atheists will see him. Agnostics will see him. Buddhists and Muslims will see him. New Agers and secularists will see him. All will see him for who he is and what he is. He will come with enhanced glory. Jesus said in Luke 21, 27, that the Son of Man would come with great glory. The Lord says in Luke 9, 26, that he will come in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. How incredible will this be? If his own personal glory was not enough, it will be attended with the glory of God and the glory of the angels, a threefold glory. The reflected glory of the angels, you remember, caused the shepherds to quake at Jesus' birth. How much more glorious will be the return of Christ? He will come in mighty glory. It will be an awesome glory, a frightening glory. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. John describes him in Revelation 19 verse 15. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. He will come in commanding glory. He will come... It appears as the Lord of hosts, accompanied by the armies that were in heaven. He will come conquering and to conquer. And he will come in supreme and unrivaled glory. His name is gloriously displayed on his leg, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has no match, no rivals, no equals. He will come with incomparable glory. And what will be the consequences of this revelation? As his first coming was to purchase salvation, so his second coming will be to perfect and complete it. All the consequences of his coming only augment his glory and show him as even more glorious. It will be a glorious revelation of himself. He shall be glorious in his revelation of himself. He will appear in the glory of his divine nature. His deity will be unveiled, unclouded, and undeniable. The God over all, blessed forever. None will be able to deny his deity in that day. None will withhold from him the honor and worship and fear he has always been worthy of. And he will appear in the glory of his human nature. He will appear robed in glory and exalted in dignity. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet it will also be a glorious revelation of his people. He shall be glorious in his full redemption of his people. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. His coming shall bring about the consummation of our salvation. He shall come with transforming, yea, glorifying glory. When he appears, we shall be like him. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed, and this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality. He shall come with consummating glory. He shall be glorious as gathering his elect to himself forever and reuniting the church militant and the church triumphant. Beloved, the world may not recognize us now, They may not know that we live in the heavenlies, but someday they're going to know. Because when he appears at his second coming, we will appear with him. 
the verdict of eternity is going to reverse the verdicts of time. And people are going to see who it was that really attained to God's presence. Lightfoot says, The veil which now shrouds your higher life from others, and even partly from yourselves, will then be withdrawn. The world which persecutes, despises, ignores now, will then be blinded with the dazzling glory of your revelation. And do you love this phrase, when Christ, who is our life, he is our life. Your life is already in Christ, and when he he comes back in glory, you will appear in glory along with him. What's hidden will now will no longer be hidden. The glory of the age to come that you glimpse and taste here will shine from you one day very soon like the sun coming up after a long night. So here's the point. Live here like you were destined to live there forever. Live here as a citizen of another country, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Live here as though you were destined to inherit the glory that is to come. Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, his glory will radiate from yours with a dazzling brilliance as you are transformed at last. And every remaining remnant of your sinful corruption will be eradicated from you forever. And you will be like him. You will see him as he is. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. And while we wait here, we should live as citizens who stand to inherit the glory yet to come, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we may run our own races with endurance until the finish line at last is crossed. And we go to be with him, or he comes to take us home, whichever comes first. So brothers and sisters, set your minds on things above, on a life that reflects the reign of Jesus' heavenly throne. Pursue the things above, because you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one day your destiny will shine from your glorified humanity with the glory and the character of Christ himself. So set your minds on that day. Long for that day. Live as though that day was your destiny. It is. Christ is your life. So keep looking up to Christ until you are with Christ in glory. Let's pray together. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you have raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We rejoice that he is at your right hand, seated in glory, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And we rejoice as many of us have put our trust in him, that we shall see him at the end of the age. Father, we pray that these truths given to us in the gospel would so enter our minds and through our minds, our hearts, that they would take root and that they would bear fruit in the whole of our lives. Oh, Father, may we leave this place and demonstrate the beauty and the joy that it is to serve this Lord who has loved us and gave himself for us, who is our life. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.